0: Well, it's my joy to be with you and uh, bring you greetings from Grace Bible Church in uh, the Dallas-Fort Worth area. Uh, I can't help but think that if our churches were closer to one another geographically, we would be doing things all the time because we're very much like-minded and uh, thankful that I can enjoy some fellowship with you on this Lord's Day and look forward to getting to know as many of you as I can. Well, I'd love for you to turn in your Bibles with me to Hebrews chapter 12. And I want to read for you uh, the text that we're going to look at in the next few minutes. Hebrews chapter 12. Pastors love to hear that sound. Anywhere you go, right? Follow along with me as I read the first 11 verses. Hebrews chapter 12. For consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against him, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin, and you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives." It is for discipline that you endure, for God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. But He disciplines us for our good, so that we may share His holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it afterward, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Let's pray together. Father, this is Your Word, and we open it now with great expectation, uh, with great care, and uh, with great eagerness to see uh, what you might have for us today. Uh, Lord, we pray that uh, you would minister to us by your Spirit through the text of Scripture, encourage our hearts, equip us, build us up in you, and most of all, might we be transformed more and more into the image of Christ. For your glory, we pray. Amen. Well, my father was a marathon runner. In fact, uh, one of my earliest memories, uh, you know, while my kids were playing, all my friends were playing peewee football and and playing soccer, and not us. Uh, It was Saturday morning cross-country meets for us and our family as dad was the family runner. And um, I remember memories of going to watch dad do races, do these marathons. And I can remember as a kid, even though he tried to get us into it, uh, why why on earth would anybody want to run 26.2 miles for fun, apparently. But that wasn't enough for my dad. Uh, My dad's claim to fame was that he ran 40 miles on his 40th birthday. Uh, I biked with him for part of the way. I got to be the water boy. And then uh, the last few miles, I think I got out and jogged with him. And and uh, I-, I could not imagine running that far. And uh, when he crossed the finish line, he had charted out the course so that it ended right in front of our home and, and uh, to the roar of, uh, well, I guess it was like my family and a few neighbors as he crossed the finish line. But, but, but the thing that I remember most as he crossed the finish line, having completed this incredible journey, and this is absolutely true, he was not even breathing hard. How do you do that? No red cape, no blue suit, this is dad, and, and he had an ability to, to run uh, like no one I ever knew. How does he do that? Well, the answer for how a distance runner like my dad is able to do 40 miles is the word endurance. Endurance is the capacity to hold out or bear up in the face of difficulty. That's what it means. And, and you know this, but the Bible regularly equates the believer's life to that of a long distance race. In the book of Hebrews, as you know, one of the author's main goals is to exhort his readers to press on, to endure, to persevere in this race which is the Christian life. And his point is that believers, like marathon runners, need endurance also. In this analogy, the main danger is not necessarily to not finish the main danger is to not finish the race or to drop out or to quit before the finish line. For the professing believer, quitting the race basically means you fall away from the faith. You abandon Christianity. You stop believing in Jesus altogether. And we know that because of persecution and cultural pressure and the ridicule of fellow Jews, many of the Jewish Christians to whom our writer is addressing uh, were tempted to quit. They were tempted to drop out of the race and return. To Judaism, which is why early on in the book in chapter 3, verse 12 of Hebrews, the writer warns his readers with these sobering words: Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Let that sink in for a moment. That that's a warning that we ought to take heed to ourselves as well today. Now, to be clear, Falling away from the faith is not a loss of salvation. In fact, it is rather proof that true salvation was never possessed. We understand that. You can't lose true salvation. But nonetheless, all believers are exhorted to to persevere in the faith, to keep on believing, to endure, to abide in the vine, to continue in the things that we've learned and become convinced of. A true Christian, according to the Bible, is one who endures. And though we live in a very different place and time in history, the possibility of falling away from the faith is still very much a clear and present danger. Unlike the audience of Hebrews, we are not threatened today by a perverse Greek mythological culture or an oppressive persecuting Roman government or a corrupt Jewish religious system. But I think today we have very real 21st century American threats that really are dangers to our endurance. I mean, and think with me about a few of these. Distractions. Distractions. Things like your hobbies, entertainment, your vocation, your job, social media, even family and sports and things like that. We remember the sobering words of Jesus in the parable of the sower and the soils in Matthew 13, that, that the cares of the world can actually choke the Word so that it becomes unfruitful. So we're we're distracted. We're a very distracted culture, and that can threaten our endurance. Or we also, if we're honest, love comfort and ease, don't we? We love to be comfortable. We want a pain-free, problem-free life. And yet Paul tells us in Romans 8, 17 that we are fellow heirs with Jesus when we endure suffering with him. We didn't sign up for Christianity because it was a pleasure cruise. We signed up because Jesus is Lord, and he calls us to suffer with him. Busyness is a distraction, isn't it? Busyness can threaten our endurance. I mean, just ask yourself today, am I tired? It's been a full week. You guys look tired, you know? It's been a long week. It's been a full week. And busyness and exhaustion and always being tired Uh, like Jesus told Martha in Luke 10, can distract us from the one thing needful and threaten our endurance. Trials and hardship, broken marriages, wayward children, being abused in your past, being burned by a church. Again, in that same parable in Matthew 13, Jesus reminds us that the scorching sun of affliction can wither the word so that it becomes unfruitful. And yesterday, the cultural pressure, the beginnings of persecution, uh, marriage redefinition, gender redefinition, and all the rest, there, there are all of these distractions and threats around us that threaten endurance. And you know, when you run a marathon, when you run a distance race, there are physiological signs that tell you that you are slowing down, that you are running out of fuel. And there are similar symptoms in our Christian life. that that call us to pay attention to the the sluggishness, the the slowing down and the endurance that we are facing. Prayerlessness. A dwindling effort exerted toward spiritual health. We start slacking in our spiritual disciplines. We're not as motivated to evangelism. When we begin to tolerate sin, when, when we forget that we're here to do evangelism and ministry and we get caught up in other things, a growing comfort with worldliness, A coldness of heart toward the Lord and His Word. When we open our Bibles, as Pastor Rick reminded us, it's just as if God is speaking to us personally and directly. We forget that sometimes. Growing slack and personal in in corporate worship. You know, most people that start races, when the gun goes off, they don't say, eh, about halfway through, I'm going to quit. Everybody who starts a race intends to finish it. And yet, because of these threats, because of these distractions we can fall away. Can I ask you a question? Are you behind in the pace of your Christian life? Are you, are you growing sluggish in the race? Are you tired? Do you feel like quitting? Well, the solution is to heed the words of this text. Our author is going to help us and remind us of how we can ensure endurance in the race that is set before us. In fact, in the section of Scripture that I just read, there's really just one main exhortation. Let's look at it together in verse 1. Here here it is. Let us run with endurance the race that is before us. In fact, the writer rearranges the word order to bring emphasis on endurance. With endurance, he says, run. And so in our uh, time we have together this morning, I'd like to look with you in this text at five resolutions to endure in the race find resolutions to endure in the race to endure in the run let's look at the first one together we see it in verse 1 remember faithful believers who have gone before us remember faithful believers who have gone before us look at verse 1 again therefore since we have so great a cloud of witnesses Surrounding us. And you'll recall that in the previous chapter, that's the great hall of faith. We learn about uh, great men and women uh, from the Old Testament, faithful believers of old who have endured hardships and trials and yet have continued in the faith. People like Abraham and Moses and David and Samuel, and allusions to other men like Daniel who shut the mouth of lions. Now, when our writer uses the word witnesses, he, he's not picturing that they're up in heaven looking down on us in some way. No, no, no. The, the, the writer means by that that these men and women, these believers of the Old Testament, testify or witness to us through, our, through their life that endurance in the faith is possible. When you and I ask, well, what does faithfulness look like? That's why that chapter here exists, to, to demonstrate the reality of faithful men and women of old who have endured. And the point is by learning about those who have endured hardship by faith, Abraham and Moses and Daniel and and David and men like that, uh, by learning about people like that and, and how they persevered in their walk, that is motivation for us to endurance. It reminds us that endurance is possible. We can finish the course. My circumstances may not be as impossible as I think compared to others. In fact, when we read those Old Testament stories, it does kind of put our suffering in context, doesn't it? We realize that that my problems are significant, but man, there are some people that went through some horrible things, and yet God was faithful, and they endured. They teach us how we can endure, and they, they demonstrate for us how God has worked in unforeseen ways in their lives. We see the faithfulness of the Lord to help believers persevere. Now, I hope that all of you are reading through your Bible in some form of fashion every day. You're using a Bible reading plan. That that spiritual discipline of taking in the Word of God is absolutely essential. And I want you to remember as you're reading your Bibles, just daily in your devotional time, look for what our author has just told us, Look for those men and women of faith, hear their stories, hear how God worked in their life, model after them, follow after them, and be encouraged that in whatever your trial, your older brothers and sisters in the faith have endured because God is faithful, and He will be faithful to us as well. And in addition to that, uh, I found great encouragement by reading Christian biographies. I don't know if any of you do this, but Christian biographies are such encouragements to us to endure in the race and to continue on in the faith. Now, over the years I've been particularly encouraged in my walk with God by reading about men like John Calvin and Martin Luther and George Whitfield, Richard Baxter, Jonathan Edwards, uh, John Patton and, and, and men like that and even uh, back home our own state senator a man named Brian Birdwell which maybe some of you have heard of but he was in the Pentagon when 9/11 hit with the airplane. He was burned over 60% of his body. And uh, his uh, biography, Trial by, Father, Trial by Fire, is a wonderful, wonderful testimony of faith, he and his wife. We, we need to read men like that and women like that who went through hardship and yet were faithful and endured. William Tyndale, the man that was uh, responsible for translating the Bible into English, who was strangled and then burned at the stake, and, and as they're coming with the flame, what does, he, what does he say? Lord, open the king of England's eyes don't you want to be like that? Don't you want to respond like that if you were ever called to lay down your life for your faith? Or John Bunyan, the the famous Puritan pastor who spent 12 years in prison. And this was a man, his, his previous wife had passed away, so he's newly married, and his wife was so stressed by Bunyan going to prison that she actually miscarried. Bunyan had four children. One of them was his blind daughter. And he often wrote in prison how he longed to see his daughter. You know what the crazy thing is about Bunyan? He could have left prison any day that he wanted. All he had to do was agree not to preach. And yet he endured for 12 years, multiple imprisonments. And of course, while he was in there, he produced the second best-selling book of all time, the pilgrim's progress. Brothers and sisters, we need to learn from from Christians of old like that and be encouraged to the the great cloud of witnesses that have gone before us. And, And I can tell you that other than the Bible itself, I have grown more spiritually by reading Christian biographies than any other type of book. So if that's not your habit, I would encourage you to do so. So we need to remember faithful believers who have gone before us. That's the first resolution to endurance. We need to learn from them, be motivated by their endurance and their faithfulness, and let that encourage us to spur ourselves on in our race. Well, let's look at the second resolution that we see in our text the second resolution to endure in the race. And uh, it is this we need to remove all hindrances to endurance. Remove all hindrances to endurance. Look, look back at verse 1 with me. Let us also lay aside every encumbrance. And the sin which so easily entangles us. He says, lay aside, put it off. And that word encumbrance literally means bulk or weight. It refers to the reality that athletes have to be in shape in order to compete. They're not overweight. They're not carrying extra pounds that could inhibit their performance. Now, you guys know next year, 2020, will, will be the year that we have another Summer Olympic Games, right? And I don't know about you, but my family loves some Olympics. We love to gather around the TV and, and watch those events, and particularly if you, if you think about track and field, and uh, I grew up in a running family, so shocking that I would watch track and field, right? And uh, you, you ever noticed a long-distance runner? I mean, do they look like they've been eating too many Cinnabons when they get out there on the track, right? Is that, is that what they look like? No, these guys are lean and they're fit and they have gotten rid of all the extra pounds cuz they don't want to let anything inhibit them. And the phrase secondly there we see the second phrase the sin which so easily entangles us. That it pictures the removal of superfluous clothing and other items that would have kept an athlete from running freely and smoothly and and you know in the original olympics in the greek games that often athletes was actually stripped down and run naked. Uh, and nowadays, when we watch the modern Olympics, uh, this is how the typical runner comes out. Right? He comes out, he's got the full-blown Nike suit on, he's got the $3,000 Bose Bluetooth-enabled uh, you know, headset, and he's rocking on to his pre-race music, right? But when that gun goes off, where are all those items? They're stowed, right? He's not, running, not bouncing around with the, with the Bose headset on. No, no, no. All those are put away, the workout suitors are moving, and they are in a slick running attire, They've removed all of those extra things that might inhibit them in the race. And we can see here by analogy what our writer is getting at. He's saying this, what areas of our spiritual life are we carrying extra weight that is holding us back in our Christian life? Do you know what those things are? Do you know what the things in your life are that are inhibiting you and entangling you and tripping you up in your relationship with Jesus Christ? Are you drifting? This is, this is really a question worth pondering. In fact, I think, I think that most Christians would say, I know exactly the things that are tripping me up in my walk with God. I'm just, not, I'm just not doing anything about them. And our writer exhorts his readers, if we are going to endure in the race, we need to identify those things, get rid of those things, turn them away. In fact, I'll, can I just encourage you? As God has brought conviction to your heart, as as you've been hearing this text and hearing, what is it that's inhibiting me? Can I just challenge you? Write one thing down. What is one thing that you could say, you know what, I really need to deal with this. I've been putting this off for way too long. I know that this is inhibiting me and my walk with God and my ministry. Would you do that? Write that down. Be, Be specific. If your doctor identified a malignant tumor and you did nothing about it, what's going to happen to you? You're going to die, probably. You're going to die. You need to get that cancer removed. You need to to put off any of those those things that are inhibiting us, so easily entangling us. Don't ignore your spiritual tumors, or you threaten your own endurance. Treatment is available. This cancer is treatable. Here's how you do it. Turn to Jesus in repentance and faith. Ask him to help you. Confess your sin. Put those things off and replace them with righteousness. So in thinking about our resolutions for enduring in the one, we want to remember faithful believers that have gone before us. We want to remove all hindrances to endurance. Let's look at number three together. Number three, we need to rivet our eyes on Jesus. Rivet our eyes on Jesus. Look at at verse two with me. Fixing our eyes on Jesus The author and perfecter of faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The command here is clear. Fix your eyes on Jesus. This refers to our focus, our our spiritual gaze. And it ought to be, according to our author, focused on Jesus. And our author wants us to focus on Jesus in two particular ways. Let's look at the first one. He wants us to focus on Jesus in his roles as originator and perfecter of faith, because that ensures our endurance, our writer says. Jesus is first, it says here, the originator, or the word might be better translated, founder of our faith. Now, let me ask you a question. If you're a Christian, where did you get your faith? Where did you get that? See, we recognize, according to texts like Ephesians chapter 2, that that great section in verses 8 to 10, that all of that transaction of salvation when we repent and believe is a gift of God, including the gift of faith. We did not earn faith. We did not produce faith. We didn't manufacture our own faith in our heart. It was an entirely free gift of His grace. That He granted to us. It is His work and His his doing in you. Now, if He gave you that faith, if He gifted you that faith, will the one, will the one who gave you this precious gift of faith, will He not keep it and guard it and protect it and preserve it until glory? That's the argument of this text. If He's going to complete the work that He started in you, Jesus will complete the work. And the Scriptures tell us plainly that we can be confident and sure about this very truth. Paul says it in Philippians 1, that he who began a work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Can you just be encouraged in that? Jesus is going to complete the work that he starts in you. For all true believers, it is his faithfulness, his work that ensures our endurance. But Jesus is not just the originator of our faith. But he's also, it says here, the, the perfecter of our faith. I love this language. Jesus is the one who is refining and perfecting and maturing and growing our faith into spiritual adulthood. And the writer calls us to rivet our eyes on Jesus by remembering that. We need to remember that your salvation is his work. Because he knew you beforehand. He predestined you. He called you. He justified you. He redeemed you. He adopted you. He he granted forgiveness to you. He made atonement on your behalf. And he will sanctify you. And one day he will glorify you and take you home to be with himself. This is Jesus' work, and he will ensure its accomplishment in your life and in mine. And our author says we need to remember that. We need to fix our eyes on that. We need to rehearse that and go over that and meditate on that and meritate in these truths, especially on those days that are hard, especially on those those mile marks in the race when you're struggling and you're hurting and you're despairing and you're discouraged and you're wondering, am I going to make it? We need to rest assured that Jesus will complete the work that he started. He begun it, and he will perfect it. This is ultimately his work. And he says, won't you turn your eyes upon Jesus and remember these things? But there's a second area, as we, our writer calls us to rivet our eyes on Jesus, not just in his work as the originator and perfecter of faith, But he calls us also to focus on a second area of Jesus' work, and that is his redeeming work of salvation, his redeeming work of salvation. And this is interesting. The writer is drawing us to focus on Jesus' work of redemption, not to appreciate all of the mechanics of salvation, although we should do that, but because that redemptive work is an example to us of true endurance. Look back at the text. Who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, I want you to think with me about something that is going to sound theologically wrong, but it is absolutely true according to Scripture. Jesus, in his life and ministry here on earth, in his humanity, was tempted to quit. He was tempted to quit. You say, how do we know that? Well, Hebrews tells us earlier in the chapter, he was tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. We we see this in his life. The devil tempted him early on in Matthew chapter 4. Early on in his ministry, the Pharisees tempted him constantly with their badgering, with their questioning, with their persecution. Even his own disciples tempted Jesus. And it all culminates in the garden. As he's anticipating the cross, he goes to his father and he prays and he asks his father, is there any way that this cup, the the cup of wrath that he's going to drink on the cross the next day, is there any way that that cup can be taken away? And yet we see in a moment of amazement, something amazing happens. He says, yet not my will, but yours be done. And he gets up and is captured. And then he was tried and beaten and crucified. Our author says we need to think about this. We need to meditate on this. And so let's do that. I want to read for you an account of Jesus' crucifixion by a medical doctor. Because we need to think about this. We need to meditate on this. We don't think about this enough. And our author is saying we need to do this as a reminder of what endurance is. Listen to medical doctor, Dr. C. Truman Davis, who wrote this account. After the arrest, in the middle of the night, Jesus was brought before the Sanhedrin and Caiaphas, the high priest. A soldier struck Jesus across the face for remaining silent when he was questioned by Caiaphas. The palace guards then blindfolded him and mockingly taunted him to identify them as they passed by, and they spat on him and they struck him in the face. Early in the morning, Jesus, battered and bruised, dehydrated and exhausted from a sleepless night, is taken across Jerusalem to the praetorium of the fortress of Antonia. And it was there in response to the cries of the mob that Pilate ordered Barabbas released and condemned Jesus to be scourged and eventually crucified. Preparations for the scourging are carried out. The prisoner is stripped of his clothing and his hands are tied to a post above his head. The Roman legionnaire steps forth with his phlegm in his hand. It's a short whip consisting of several heavy leather thongs with two small balls of lead attached to the end and possibly laced with bones on the end as well. The heavy whip is brought down with full force again and again across Jesus' shoulders and his back and his legs. The small balls of lead first produce deep bruises which are broken open by subsequent blows and finally the skin of the back is hanging in long ribbons. And the entire area is an unrecognizable mass of torn, bleeding tissue. When it is determined by the centurion in charge that the prisoner is near death, the beating is finally stopped. The half feigning Jesus is then untied and allowed to slump to the stone pavement, wet with his own blood. The Roman soldiers see a great joke in the provincial Jew claiming to be a king, so they throw a robe across his shoulders, place a stick in his hand for a scepter, A small bundle of flexible branches covered with long thorns is pressed into his scalp. Again, there is copious bleeding, the scalp being one of the most vascular areas of the body. After mocking him and striking him across the face, the soldiers take the stick from his hand and strike him across the head, driving their thorns deeper into his scalp. Finally, they tire of their sadistic sport, and the robe is torn from his back. This has already become adherent to the clots, to the blood and the serum in the wounds and its removal, just as the careless removal of a surgical bandage causes excruciating pain, almost as, though he, almost as though he were being again whipped and his wounds began to bleed again. The heavy beam of the cross is then tied across his shoulders and the procession of the condemned Jesus, two thieves, and the execution detail begin its slow journey. The weight of the heavy wooden beam together with shock produced by the copious blood loss, is too much. Jesus stumbles, and he falls to the ground. The rough wood of the beam gouges into the lacerated skin and muscles of the shoulders. He tried to rise, but human muscles have been pushed beyond their endurance. At Golgotha, the beam is placed on the ground, and Jesus is quickly thrown backward with his shoulders against the wood. The legionnaire feels for the depression at the front of the wrist. He drives a heavy, square, wooden, and iron nail through the wrist and deep into the wood. Quickly, he moves to the other side and repeats the action, being careful not to pull the arms too tightly, but to allow some flexing and movement. The beam is then lifted in place, and at the top of the stipes, the reading is put in place, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews." The left foot is pressed backward against the right foot, and with both feet extended and toes down, a nail is driven into the arch of each. As the arms fatigue, great waves of cramps sweep over the muscles, nodding them in deep relentless fatigue and throbbing pain. With these cramps comes the inability to push himself up upward, hanging by his arms. The pectoral muscles are paralyzed, and the intercostal muscles are unable to act. Air can be drawn into the lungs, but cannot be exhaled. Jesus fights to raise himself in order to get even one short breath. But finally, carbon dioxide builds up in his lungs and in the bloodstream, and the cramps partially subside. Spasmodically, he is able to push himself upward to exhale and bring in the life-giving oxygen. Hours of this limitless pain, cycles of twisting, joint-rending cramps, intermittent partial asphyxiation, searing pain as tissue is torn from his lacerated back as he moves up and down against the rough timber. Then another agony begins, a deep, crushing pain in his chest as the pericardium, slowly filling with serum, begins to compress the heart. The compressed heart is struggling to pump heavy, thick, sluggish blood into the tissues. And then the tortured lungs are making frantic efforts to grasp in small gulps of air. The markedly dehydrated tissue sending in their flood of stimuli to the brain. And Jesus gasps, I thirst. He can feel the chill of death creeping in through his tissue. With one last surge of strength, he once again presses his torn feet against the nail, straightens his legs takes a deep breath and utters his seventh and last cry, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He bows his head, breathes his last breath, and dies. And yet, as horrible as recounting the physical death of Jesus, that is not what the Bible says was the most excruciating part. We know as he's hanging on the cross, he, he cries out in, in a spiritual moment unlike any other that history has ever seen, as he is bearing the horrific, undiluted, full-strength wrath of God over sin, and he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And whatever that means in terms of the Trinity, we understand that Jesus, for that moment, heard silence, only silence from his Father in heaven. And yet, look at our text. Jesus, it says here, despised the shame. Is that not incredible? He despised the shame. He was unafraid of this. He he was not swayed away from this. He endured it. He didn't quit. This is the greatest example of endurance we have ever seen how did he do it? You say, well, he was the son of God. Yes. But look at what it says. How did he endure it? One word. One word explains his endurance. Joy. It's joy. Look look at it. He says, for the joy set before him say, what is this joy? What is the joy that that helped Jesus to endure this suffering, both physical and spiritual? What was this joy that compelled him to not be fearful in the midst of this incredible, incredible pain and and death? It was this. It was the overwhelming delight of completing the Father's will by accomplishing the work of redemption so that God and sinners Could be reconciled. That was his joy. His greatest joy was to see the smile on his father's face, to hear, Well done, my good and faithful son. His joy that caused him to endure was the joy of pleasing his father. One commentator wrote this His joy is the joy of heaven over every sinner who repents and returns to the father's home, over every lost sheep that is found, over every son that was dead and is alive again. This joy was what led him to endure. It helped him to finish the race, to endure the suffering, to persevere through the torture. And after rising triumphantly from the dead, he ascended into heaven and sat down at the right hand of the Father. And I need to ask you this. Would you endure? Would you gladly endure for a Savior who laid down his life for you and me like this? Would you go and be a witness for this Savior? Would you inconvenience yourself to do this man's will who died in your place? Would you deny yourself to follow Jesus? Would you stand and die for the one who died for you? See, the joy of honoring him. This is the takeaway, okay? The the secret to endurance here is that it is the joy of honoring him that becomes our motivation to endure. That's it. The, The key to enduring is to have joy. Your greatest delight and joy is to do the will of your Father as Jesus the Son did. Do you delight? Do you delight to do the will of your Father? Do you get up in the morning and you think, if I do Anything else today, my greatest task is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, to to seek His heavenly smile, to do His will for me today, to live in a way that I might be pleasing to Him. Is your greatest joy to know Him and make Him known. But we must linger a bit longer on this point because he says in the next verse, consider Him, right? There it is. He says, Linger a little longer. Verse three, consider him who has endured such hostility by sinners against himself, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. That's number four. Number four is to rehearse in our minds Christ's endurance through hostility. Rehearse in our minds Christ's endurance through hostility. Again, it's not simply enough to hear what Jesus suffered for you. We need to study it. We need to meditate on it. We need to think about it, especially in times when endurance is difficult. As the hymn writer Isaac Watts wrote, we need to survey the wondrous cross. We need to see from his head, his hands and feet, sorrow and love flowing mingled down. We need to spend time around that and meditate on that that's why god invented communion because communion would be a regular time that we come around and remember these things we we intentionally remember the hostilities that christ endured at the hands of sinners in order to accomplish salvation for us and listen this is amazing listen to the promise of this verse look back at the text when we intentionally think about his endurance Through suffering and hardship, his hostilities, his persecutions, his affliction that that he endured, the text tells us, then we will not grow weary and lose heart. That's a great promise. As we meditate on Christ, our author tells us that we will not grow weary and lose heart in the race. As we rehearse in our minds Christ's endurance through suffering, you and I will find a supernatural resolve, an unexplained ability, so that we won't quit the race. We'll keep on enduring. And brothers and sisters, on the day that things are too hard and too overwhelming and you're ready to give up and you're ready to throw in the towel and you say, I'm done with this, just remember this next verse. Look back. You and I have not resisted to the point of shedding blood in our striving against sin. But he did. He Suffered to the point of shedding blood in his striving against sin as our substitute, as our atoning sacrifice. That's actually a medical condition. It's called hematodroisis. It's where the capillaries in the sweat glands burst and begin mixing blood with sweat. And Jesus demonstrates physiologically in this his endurance, his, his fight in the temptation to quit. And we need to remember that his suffering was much greater. And therefore, what does that mean? We're not supposed to look at him and say, well, my suffering doesn't matter. That's not the point. The point is, if that's what he's been through, if that's what he's gone through, if that's what he's endured, then you know what he can do for us? What does he say back in chapter 4? Come boldly to the throne of grace. And Jesus says, come to me. And I will give you sufficient mercy and sufficient grace to help you endure in your day of need. What a promise. There's one more thing we need to look at. Look at this next section. Look back at the text. Have you forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. And he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure, for God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Therefore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our holiness so that we may share, for our good, so that we may share in his holiness. For all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful, yet to those who have been trained by it afterward, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Now, I know what you're thinking. What does this section have to do with endurance? In fact, your Bible might even put a paragraph marker there. But, but I'm here to tell you, as I study this, this next paragraph is absolutely essential to understanding endurance. And uh, we're not going to get into all the details here, but let me at least give you the big picture. What does this have to do with endurance? The point of this section uh, on discipline and, and whatnot, the point of this section is to explain why endurance is necessary. I mean, you ever thought about this? Why doesn't Jesus save us and then just take us to glory? Why is why does he leave us here with, with indwelling sin and we fight against it and we have to grow and be sanctified and put off sin and grow in righteousness? And what, what is that process for? Why should we want that? Why should we want to endure? Answer we need training. We need training. We are not yet what we should be. The reason that God prescribes hostility and hardships and hurts, and calls us to endure is because we are not yet fit for heaven. And he's completing that work. He's doing that work. We need training. We need changing. We need sanctification. We need to be molded and more and more into the image of Christ. That's verse 7, right? It is for discipline that you endure. That word discipline actually means training, Training is the purpose of our discipline, according to our author. We should endure through hardship because we need to be trained in godliness. But, but listen, listen. But for that to happen, something almost miraculous has to happen, okay? If we are going to be trained in endurance, something has to happen. We need to reinterpret our hardship, We need to reinterpret our hardship. The challenge of this last section is this. I'll put it up on the PowerPoint there. We need to reinterpret our hardship as God's purposeful fatherly training. Does that make sense? That's what he's doing. We have to reinterpret our hardship, our hurts, our hostility that meet us in life. Those are actually parts of God's spiritual fitness plan. That's what he's doing. He's fitting us. He's training us. Those things are the tools he uses to train us and shape us into the image of Jesus. Now, I know it is football season. And I know, like you, you will watch on the sidelines some of these coaches, right? And in their better moments, you see the, the, the veins bulging out of their neck and they're, they're shouting things and the camera shouldn't be on them because it's picking up words that the camera shouldn't pick up on. And uh, it's a tyrant coach, right? Right? But that's not the picture here. The picture here is not a tyrant coach who's whipping us into shape. No, no, no. The picture here is of a wise father. Look at verse seven again. God deals with you as sons, and his purposes are good. Look at verse 10. He disciplines us, meaning he trains us, even sometimes using the spiritual rod on us. Why? For our good, so that we may share in His holiness. Here's the perspective. Here's how we need to reinterpret the hardship of life. Look at verse 11. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, see there's training, afterward it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. See, when we're in the midst of that hostility and hardship and hurt When we're we're in the middle of trouble and a trial, we're not being joyful, are we? We're sorrowful, just as this text tells us. But we need to remember that God is using those hardships. He's using those circumstances to train us. Why? So that afterward, the text tells us, after we are trained, we enjoy this amazing result. Righteousness. Holiness can I just ask you, do you want to be more like Christ? Do you want to be righteous? Do you want to grow in holiness? Then you need to do this. You need to reinterpret the hardship in your life as God's training protocol to produce holiness and righteousness and Christ-likeness in you, we will not endure unless we begin to view the hardships of life as God's purposeful, fatherly training. This is His training program. Many years ago, when my youngest son was little, maybe maybe two or three years old, uh, he, he's all grown up now. He's ten, um, and uh, I don't remember the, the circumstances, but I do remember the image. Uh, he had come up with some infection, and we took him to the doctor, and the doctor says, okay, he's going to need a shot today. And uh, you remember when your kids were young enough to kind of understand what's coming, but not quite old enough to explain how the medicine is going to help them? Do you remember that? So that's where he's at. He's panicking. He's freaking out. I mean, and and, and the picture I have is my my dear wife and I had to hold him down as he's screaming, as he's crying, we're holding him down as, as the nurse is bringing the shot. And I will, I will never, ever forget what he said. In the midst of his sobbing and crying and screaming, Dad, I thought you loved me. What do you do? Right? What do I do? He, can't, he doesn't understand how the medicine works. I, I can't launch into an explanation of why he needs this to cure. And I can't help but think that there are times that God the Father must think like that. That we're screaming, we're crying, we're crying out to him in our hardship, God, I thought you loved me. And what he's actually doing is he's administering the cure. He's administering the, the things that we need to grow in holiness in righteousness. He's making us more like his son through those hard things of life. Can I ask you another question? Are you fighting against the very things that God is trying to do in your life as part of his kind and gracious fatherly training so that you might share more in his holiness, in his son's likeness, We need to reinterpret our hardship to see what a good and kind Heavenly Father is doing. Brothers and sisters, we are in need of endurance. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus. Let us run the race with endurance. Let us us be reminded that a good and kind Heavenly Father is reworking in our difficulties so that we look more and more like His Son.